0: Welcome to SEEDS, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We're particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. Hi everyone, welcome along to this episode where we're going to get the chance to speak with Dr. Cheryl Doig about the future of learning. And we have one of those fascinating, wide-ranging conversations where we talk a lot about the future. Here's an excerpt of the interview with Cheryl.
1: I think there's going to be more uh, variation and more options for people to learn. And so the the universities themselves, uh, a lot of them will survive and people will still think they're important because they've always thought they're important. Mm -hmm. but because there are more choices, universities are changing, but they have such a monster of tradition mm. and, and some people that want to change and some people that want to keep doing. Uh, what they've always done. And I just don't think that's an option anymore. Mm
0: -hmm. I know you're going to enjoy this interview because we touch on a number of different topics. And if you do, you might want to check out some of the earlier episodes because there's literally dozens and dozens of other interviews that I've done with a real variety of people. The aim of the podcast is to surprise you as the listener with how diverse the range of people are that are being interviewed so that every week there's a new perspective and a new voice being heard. If you don't want to miss out on upcoming episodes, then just hit subscribe. Now let's dive into the interview with Cheryl. All right, so it's a pleasure to welcome Cheryl Doig, who's the founder of Think Beyond and is a leadership futurist. Thank you for joining me today. My pleasure. Um, On this podcast, what we do is we talk about what people are doing now. And I'd love to chat with you about things like education and the future of learning and what the future itself holds. Um, But in order to do that, um, let's go right back to the beginning of your life and find out a little bit of context about where you're from, because that will then inform why you're doing what you're doing now. So if you could just start by telling us a little bit about um, your background and where you're from.
1: Sure. So I grew up in Christchurch, the youngest of three daughters, and I grew up in, in Aranui, so um, went to all of the, the local schools and I think probably had a, a typical middle of the road life um I and that
0: uh, that childhood um did you have siblings and
1: yes yeah, so I had two older sisters mm-hmm. so um one six years old and one seven years older and uh, so they sort of hung out a lot together and I was the spoiled baby right uh, younger <laughs> sister if you like and so um was that an
0: accurate stereotype do you think or
1: um, <laughs> uh, probably, um, bec- because I was the, the youngest one I always uh, got to tag along with them when they were teenagers Which wasn't so much fun for them <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> And what sort of things did you enjoy as a child? Or did you like the outdoors or in you know, reading and that type of things?
1: Or? Yeah, so I was a, always an avid reader uh, so my, my sisters used to say uh, I read to keep a- away from having to do any work but actually I'd just be engrossed in, in reading and learning and going to the local library in Brighton and mm-hmm. um, reading all sorts of different things but um, that I guess was an escape route for me mm. uh, so a lot of um, reading, um, sport so um, when, when you we grew up in, in, in Arunui in those days. It was basketball was the sport. So that was my sport and still mm-hmm. is the sport I love the most. Oh, good.
0: Well, we share something in common. <laughs> <laughs> I love basketball. Yeah. 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 It's a really fun, fast-paced game. It, it is. Yeah. 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 And that childhood with the reading side of things, does that trace to some part of your family, do you think? Like were there examples, you know, your parents or others who that they enjoyed reading or was it quite different that you enjoyed it?
1: I think it was quite different. So I was really different from my two sisters. They both left school as soon as they could. So at fifteen, they were gone, and I wanted to stay at school. Uh, I liked reading. I liked learning, and so you know, I was really the the black sheep of the family in that re- regard. Mm. It was uh, I was a bit odd. Mm.
0: What what caused that, or what what made you that way? Do you think?
1: I I don't know. I I've, I think uh just the time to be by myself um with time away from my sisters. Uh I just enjoyed school and really uh just loved the learning. So I'm not sure what it was, but I I've, I've always been like that.
0: Mhm. Yeah. And what were some of your favorite subjects at school?
1: My favourite subjects at school, probably English, which fits obviously with the the passion for reading, English literature, um, poetry, uh, but also phys ed, uh, those sorts of things, and um, geography really enjoyed. Mm -hmm. Uh, Did more of the humanities than the sciences, Uh, and yeah, those those were the things, probably a a little bit of history, but um, was generally... Interested in all of the learning, and especially when I was at high school, uh, I stayed until what was then the seventh form, and there were only about nine of us in the class, and only three girls by the end of the year, only two, so we were quite a a small group of Mm. of, um, learners that stayed on for secondary school.
0: Mm. So what was it like in that environment?
1: In In the school environment? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think we had some good teachers like anywhere and some that weren't so great but some some pretty amazing teachers that captured our imagination and I think um, the the interesting thing about being a small group of, of learners in the senior years is that uh, you learn a lot about each other and you have to get on because you can't get away from each other so right. that was really <laughs> interesting um, and trying to give back to the school. So in our last two years, I like, so I was a, a prefect uh, and, and head girl in my last year. Mm-hmm. So we had some extra responsibilities of, of working with the principal, which seemed quite cool in those days mm-hmm. to be able to sit in the principal's office and have lunch with him. Yeah.
0: And, yeah. Oh, that's great. And when you got to the end of high school, um, it sounds like you went on to study further, um, but that would have been quite different for your family. Was that right?
1: Yes, so my uh, my middle sister wanted to leave school and the school wanted her to stay and, and my father who was a, a, a quiet little Scotsman uh, went down to see the principal and said my daughter can leave school if she wants to because educated women are nothing but cold fish and so uh, I came along as the third daughter and I wanted to be educated more and um, so that was different and at the end of my schooling, it was so. What will I do now? And I guess I'd always, you know, played with the dolls and and uh, tamed the chickens and so on. So I went to teachers' college and hmm. did three years of training to be a teacher.
0: Mm-hmm. And what was the reaction from your family and you know your parents and things?
1: Uh, I think they were they were pleased and excited, mm-hmm. uh, a little bit puzzled, uh, but proud. Uh, that that oh, they had, nice. you know, one of their their children going on to further study. So, uh, I I used to hop on my uh, Honda fifty and and go into into town, which is where the university, where the teachers' college was, um, in those days, and um, there. So that was quite an unusual experience for them, mm. and also probably the the start of my university studies. Which so over my time, I've always really. Um, undertaken university studies as well as doing my job. Uh, so, you know, 25 years of, of part-time university study, um, mm. I'm quite over it <laughs> in a positive way. Sure. Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> well, that's great. And just thinking about that decision to become a teacher, like was there a particular teacher in your high school years that really stood out that you thought that's, that's the career I want to take or... Or was it a combination of...
1: I think there were, were a number of teachers, but two that stick out in my uh, my secondary years. Um, one was was Sister Pauline O'Regan, who was a nun who came to teach at the high school, at Arunui High School, which was quite unusual because I'd never met a nun before, let alone um, uh, one that was coming to teach us. Mm. And she was a pretty amazing woman, mm. uh, great mm. teacher. But, but in my last year, I had... Uh, I took geography for the first time, and my my teacher was a man called Ken Wilson Pine, who had the gift of making learning authentic and relevant. And so we took part in a in a competition that was to look at Rolleston as a satellite city. It was never going to happen, uh, but we entered this competition, and our team was third. Uh, but it was such a practical. A project that it really captured my imagination not necessarily for to become a geography teacher but just to to um, make a difference to, mm. to other learners.
0: Mm. So what was the unique thing that he was doing making it you use the word authentic there was it was that?
1: Yes of... yeah so we weren't just uh, completing the curriculum out of books he made it he, he was he had great relationships But he took us on field trips, and we actively took part in the learning, Mm -hmm. and created the learning, and worked worked as a team to um, to complete projects that were of benefit to the Mm -hmm. wider world. So, yeah, that was pretty important for me.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's amazing how individuals can play a role, you know, particularly teachers, right? Like that they come into contact with young people who are making decisions, thinking about the future, and. And one person can have an impact on so many.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And and uh, I guess that's uh, a huge burden because mm-hmm. it can be positive and negative.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. My grandmother was a teacher. She taught like you know five-year-olds, six-year-olds, new entrants, and she used to get people coming up to her in the supermarket, and they would then be twenty or thirty or whatever, and they'd say, "Oh, Mrs. Moe. I remember when you were my first teacher, just such an amazing legacy. Yes,
1: you find them all over the world. Sometimes you can be tramping in the middle of nowhere and someone uh, recognizes you.
0: Right, Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, that's cool. Well, that's great to trace a little bit there. Um, So what happened next? You were doing your studies and then…
1: Yeah, so I um, went to Teachers College, finished my three years and actually started my first year teaching in Dunedin. So my first 10 years of teaching were in intermediate schools, mm-hmm. uh, one year there and then came back to Christchurch and uh, I guess was always interested in the, the what happens before intermediate, what happens after and just keeping um, my interests fairly wide mm-hmm. rather than captured into one small area. So obviously I, I was interested in um, reading and so my... As I developed into the leadership area, it was it was in um, literacy um, as a, um, a main area to start with, mm-hmm. but then I moved to Richmond School and. Uh, took a senior role there with younger children, which was a bit of a shock to the system right. uh, in, in a good way. But uh, having having only taught at uh, intermediate level um, and suddenly have having seven-year-olds to teach, uh, it's not quite the same. You don't have the same resources. But I stayed at that school and um, became deputy principal and then uh, was acting principal and won the job permanently. So that was uh, – I was – um, in my early 30s as a principal, which were, for those days was quite young in the, the city, mm-hmm. uh, and was at Richmond School for seven years as principal, really foundational years, uh, learnt a lot about life, very transient population, um, very multicultural, strong Maori population, and I guess that was another thing that really informed who I am and what I think is important. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and,
0: and what era are we talking about here? Was this um, in terms of the decades? When when was this?
1: Yeah, so I went to Richmond in the late nineteen eighties, mm-hmm. uh, and so I was a, a principal in the nineteen nineties, yeah. uh, and um, foundational years. Um, while I was there, one of our young children was killed by a stepdad um so that was a really painful time mm-hmm. and one that also was one of the cr- critical incidents that really helped shape what i believe in
0: mm-hmm.
1: um so but but all of this time i was also studying and my my passions are for pushing the boundaries and so although i've done that in the traditional system to start with it was always looking for how we might improve what we're doing and uh, so uh, after seven years at Richmond, we during the time there, we were um, awarded School of the Year throughout New Zealand, the Goodman Fielder, which was uh, great, but it was time for some new challenges. So I moved to Fendleton School and was principal there for seven years. And again, uh, chalk and cheese in terms of the types of communities, but uh, what it taught me is that people are people. Right. And uh, it's about forming relationships and listening and also being... I'm quite staunch sometimes in what you believe in mm-hmm. and what you're prepared to negotiate and what you're not.
0: Mm. Well, let's unpack that a little bit. But before we do that, can we go back to the incident you mentioned where the child had been killed? Mm-hmm. Um, just describe a little bit more. You said that that was very formative in your thinking and, and sort of um, can you tell us a little bit more about that in what yeah. ways?
1: Um, so so um, Glenn was, was one of our uh, young boys who was he was 10 uh, was reading the the Lord of the Rings was um had, had a, a bit of a, um, a a troubled family life and uh I, I think for me um we wouldn't have seen him as one of our most at-risk students mm-hmm. uh and yet he he was killed because he stole five five dollars from his stepdad and um, so those, that, that time was one of, of great grief for the community mm-hmm. and having to deal with the that stress and the media and um, the the outpouring of grief from the community mm. and and some of our parents who who were from our drug families uh, and you knew that they were thinking the same thing as you were and that is it could just as easily have been one of their children, mm. so. Um, so
0: it rallied the community together. It rallied yeah. the
1: community together, but mm. it, uh, also those that group of young children that were in Glenn's class, mm. they have never forgotten. Right. So they still um, find each other and are connected and mm. go back to the school because mm. there's a memorial plaque there that um, was lost for a while in, when the school closed, but it's now back because um, they found it and made it happen. Mm. You know, so really strong um, emotional ties that bind you to a place.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's really, yeah, very powerful. Yeah. And yep. then the, um, so then let's just talk about, I guess, the the next stage with Findleton and mm-hmm. what were some of the things that you learned? You mentioned chalk and cheese, but yep. the commonality of being human. Um, yeah, can you just unpack that a little bit maybe?
1: Um, one of the, one of the things that happens in education and not, not just education, mm-hmm. but people... Um, wonder if you're going to succeed when you go to a new place Mm -hmm. and so they they would say it's fine being principal at Richmond but Fendleton is a really different kettle Mm -hmm. of fish Um, and uh, so for me there were differences in the way parents uh, for example would deal with issues Mm -hmm. Um, but uh, it was still about building the relationships with them if you like Mm -hmm. and and also i was different from the last two principals that that had um and it it, i came in a a time when it was um a difficult time for this the school Mm -hmm. and i guess i had to to be the not the peacemaker but the person that could move through that and so um what I, I found in leaving uh, one school where I'd been highly regarded and respected and loved, and handed over um, mm. through, um, uh, you know, so I was officially handed over. They, the, the community from Richmond had had um, made a cloak for me, a kotowai, and mm. officially handed me over. Um, and so I left all these friends and people that I had mm. history with yeah. to a school where some of them didn't even want me for the job and so you know that's the that's the normal thing that that happens when you go to a new school um and so i had to build up reputation but i also had to uh, work with with people but also be clear in what i was doing Um, and also one of the things I know about leadership is you have to be able to lead yourself, and so you need to know what your strengths are. So mm-hmm. it was a bit of soul searching right. as well about what I needed to change in terms of my behaviour.
0: Mm-hmm. And what were some of the other leadership lessons that you got through these? It sounds like there was fourteen years there as as principal. So,
1: yes, yeah, so seven in each school. I yeah. think I think the um, the the leadership. Uh, um, the the complexity. So my work now is in that complex space of leadership change because mm. uh, schools typically are put into a linear sort of model, and that's what's rewarded by the system. Mm. But what I've I've come to appreciate really well is that. Um, some things are like that but there's a heck of a lot that uh, falls into the complex domain where it's messy and there is not one answer and so mm. the grey space um, is much more common than the black and white mm. Yeah, and so um, I guess I'm more passionate about that and the, the because the world is changing so fast we are in the gray space a lot more mm-hmm. and and so that's probably one of my biggest leadership learnings is the you know that uh, we do need to be able to think um in adaptive ways
0: mm-hmm. yeah well i think we're going to come back to this in a minute um just thinking about the future <laughs> um but before we get there let's just finish off in terms of your Career progression and things. So once you'd finished at Findleton, what happened next?
1: Sure. So um, I had uh, a little bit of time as a, a, a teaching fellow at the, the college. So I, went, I did that for a, a year. But when I'd finished my all of my uh, studies, mm. so. Um, I finished my doctorate through um, Griffith University in Brisbane and I I thought that it was time to do something different and one of the reasons for that is because we say that young people are going to have all these jobs um, but from a a teaching point of view it's a pretty safe profession and so Mm -hmm. uh, I really wanted to put my money where my mouth was so I left teaching and I thought about what I wanted to do next mm. and decided I would set up my own business. So mm. that was when Think Beyond was born. And my colleagues thought I was mad. Uh, and um, I, right from the beginning, I was clear about the sorts of things that I would do and, and what I wouldn't do in that work. Mm-hmm. And um,
0: So when did yeah. you set that up?
1: Um, well, I've been in business for 11 years, so right. yeah. about 13 years ago. So I sort of was setting it up before I left just because I was already doing quite a bit of speaking and Mm. running workshops and that sort of thing for people.
0: Right. Oh, that's great. And um, the name Think Beyond, is that something you came up with right from the beginning or has it evolved over time?
1: It was hard work. You know what it's like setting up a company and thinking, what is a name that epitomizes what I believe in and and where I want to head? And I'd think of names and and have a look and it's like, oh no, that one's taken. Right. (laughs) so, you know, it was a process of elimination. But when I got to Think Beyond and it was available, it just seemed right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I have the same issue with the podcast, actually, like thinking, what should I call this podcast? I'm interviewing a variety of people. Every week is different. What is my, you know, what? and originally I was thinking of something like talking purpose or something like that. And then eventually settled on seeds because seeds has a more of a, you know, almost a metaphor type quality, you know, like that each conversation is like a seed that it can grow up and, um, you know, the tree can grow from a seed. And I like that. Absolutely. Um, Seeds so, is a great name. Yeah. So um, you've been doing that for a while now then. And just tell us a little bit about, um, I guess, what what it is that you're doing. I, I was at a conference recently that you helped to organize, um, which was on the future of learning. Mm. Um, can you just tell us, maybe unpack a little bit about what your business involves, and then we'll dive deeper with with those
1: things? Yeah, sure. So it's it's interesting. Uh, trying to describe my work to people is quite hard because I have a portfolio career, mm-hmm. which means I, I, I do a whole lot of things. And uh, so um, the idea of having a, a, a pitch or a, an elevator speech, etc., is really hard for me. Mm. And that's because I work in the complex space. So uh, I do some speaking in the area of, of what the future looks like. Uh, I also do some consulting in terms of leading change and uh, particularly in that complex space, working mm-hmm. through those sorts of issues mm-hmm. and s- leadership development. So I've helped develop leadership frameworks, um, mm-hmm. but I also do quite a bit of governance work. So I'm board chair of a, a couple of boards and on some mm-hmm. trusts. Uh, and I've got some big projects that take quite a bit of my time, um and, and probably in the last three or four years, they've drawn me back to Christchurch, which was different from in the early years. And certainly in the the, the time of the earthquakes, I was probably lucky enough to be working mostly out of Christchurch. So although I've never left Christchurch uh, during that time, um, I've worked in different parts of the, the country and also overseas overseas. Um, with international schools Mm. and and so on. So I was able to move in and out, and I think Mm. that was probably a good thing.
0: Yeah. All right, well, let me ask a question then. You've noticed that you're working more in Christchurch now. What is it that's changed, that's happened, and and how does that fit in with the earthquakes?
1: I think I have, as I've become older, uh, wanted to give back, Mm -hmm. and so in... The days before, pre-earthquake, I I support a trust called Rata Teacher Support and it trains untrained teachers to teach overseas. So I would go and help set up those and I've worked with the team in Ghana and in India and in South Africa um, in the squatter camps and the sort of the the underprivileged areas. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I guess with the quakes... I thought it's time to give back to my own community mm-hmm. and there were some some projects that were happening um that I was particularly passionate about and mm-hmm. so that drew me back to the city and then led on to other work as a result of that. Mhm.
0: Yeah. It just strikes me that there's a there is a lot going on in Christchurch.
1: Absolutely. You
0: know, and I think there's a perception probably particularly overseas, you know, like where it was just a headline for a couple of days there's been a major earthquake and um but actually it feels to me like there was a lot that got shaken up in terms of ways of thinking and um it feels like it's a place where there's quite a lot of blue sky thinking going on you know what does the future hold you know the conference what is the future of learning and um you know there's it seems like it's a place that's gathering people together i don't know if is that what? What's oh your thoughts, my Sarah? word! Yes. Yeah.
1: Yes, and so uh, probably about seventy percent of my time is spent in education, and the rest is in health and startups and all sorts of different things. But mm-hmm. the education uh, scene in Christchurch is really unique, and that's partly because after the quakes, the uh, the Ministry of Education, the government. Uh, created something called the Greater Christchurch Education Renewal Plan. And so, G-stirp. Rules uh, <laughs> um, off the tongue. Yeah, right, yeah. So, uh, and and it because so many schools were damaged and for some time schools were co-locating, um, they knew that they needed to put some money into rebuilding schools and uh, that was fine, but you can build new buildings without changing what happens inside them. And so Mm. uh, there's been a major project in Christchurch called Grow Waitaha, which is about changing the vision and direction of schools and supporting their transformational journeys. Uh, And that's quite unique and has the interest of the whole country Mm -hmm. in terms of what's happening here for education. Mm -hmm. So some, some pretty... Big decisions have been made, and um, the ministry locally have worked quite differently to be part of the team and um, to to work in a, a more of an alliancing sort of approach. Mm-hmm. So I think that has been a a, a key um, change agent in the city in terms of the um, the compulsory education se- sector. I think there's 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 still we're still on the up curve, and the reason for having the future of learning is because we can't afford to not catch the next wave, mm-hmm. uh, because there's so much happening in in the world of learning, the wider, uh, the wider sort of idea of learning from cradle to grave, yep. especially with with exponential technologies. Mm-hmm. That if we don't catch that curve. Uh, we're going to be left behind. Yeah.
0: Well, let's talk about the future of learning and the conference and things. What was the genesis for that? I, I went to it, and mm-hmm. thank you for inviting me along. Um, and so I heard a little bit there, but not all the listeners will have. So do you mind just giving us a bit of background and what you were hoping to achieve with it?
1: We So my, my colleague Hamish Duff and I, we met at Singularity University Conference mm-hmm. and started to conversation because his daughter was at secondary school and you know that was um, we were looking at the changes that needed to happen and so that's where the idea came from and 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 I kind of like that because it, it it uh, shows that you can go to a conference or do something and, and actively then um, make a change. So we decided that we'd run a series of events called the Future of Learning that really uh, took the idea of exponential technologies and their effect on learning. Um, mm-hmm. But we didn't want to just attract teachers. It's not a, It wasn't a teachers' conference uh, because uh, the changes... Are happening and will affect business, will affect education, tertiary um, communities, mm. um, students, and so that that diversity of people in the room is really important for the conversations. Mm-hmm. Uh, rather than thinking education belongs to one sector, uh, so we had a whole lot of speakers who were um, um, involved with technology, but try, we tried to spin it from so what does that mean for learning now, and where are things heading, mm-hmm. and so what do we need to consider. So the, the, we had a one-day conference, but we also had two two-day masterclasses where we had small teams of, of adults and some year seven to ten students working on projects um, that spun off from that. Mm, mm. And then um, we've also, we on our fourth day, we had a half-day focused on the future of uh, the the city of learning and what that might mean if we really focused on Christchurch becoming a le- learning ecosystem and an attractor for learning um, across the country and, and globally. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, for different events, but the focus was on on the changes that are happening in the world and therefore what we need to be aware of and I guess from a futurist point of view, um, there are, there are different ways of, of scanning the future, but actually, if you don't know uh, what's out there, whether you like it or not, um, you can't you can't start to make changes and work towards what we call the preferred future
0: mm-hmm. So when you when you talk about because when we talked before we were recording we're talking about the future and futurist, what what sort of time frame are we talking about when when you use that label you know being a futurist like how far in the future are you thinking um, or does it vary depending on the
1: context? I think it really varies depending on the con uh, context. So typically we might be thinking from five to twenty years out. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I find when I'm working with an organisation is that you're often not talking about the future. You're just bringing them up to date with today. Uh, and so you know, at the conference, for example, the technologies we showed, they're already here and happening. Right. Uh, but if people don't at least have um, the understanding of today, they can't move into the future. Yeah. But but typically in a, a three horizons approach, we'd be looking sort of um, between five and, and 20 years.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah um because the the fascinating thing I guess is to even look further isn't it you know like in 50 years Absolutely. what's it going to be like yep. I interviewed um <coughs> somebody um uh, Peter wells from the Otakaro orchard and he was talking about edible food for us and yes. wouldn't it be great if rather than just planting any old tree here you know if we planted fruit producing trees and if we actually um thought in a hundred years time, what is it going to look like to live in the city? You Absolutely. know, and I love that idea of the time frame being beyond intergenerational. You know, that to have the scope to think beyond where we're at.
1: And I think that's really important because that's why we have Hagley Park, for mm. example, because our forebears thought about the future, and so we get to inherit that. Mm. And, and I think we need to be thinking about those long-term intergenerational projects because. Um, That's that's about the survival of the the city, but also of the planet.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's too easy to get focused just on next year or five years, and that's the only time frame. Absolutely. Actually, if you start having a conversation and think, "Well, my great great grandchildren, you know, what's it going to be like for them?" All of a sudden, you get a different um, Mm. worldview context. Absolutely. Mm. So, reflecting on the conference, the future of learning—like there was lots of people who came. and they came from all over, didn't they? Like there were Dunedin and other parts of the country. Um, what what would you say were some of the outcomes from that, or things that I don't know? Maybe you hadn't expected, or that you had expected, but it it was a, a positive mm-hmm. sign.
1: One of the the outcomes that we had hoped for, and and I think we achieved, was that people talked to people that were outside their sector, mm-hmm. and so a number of people. Um, said to us in the feedback it was great to interact with people that we wouldn't have Mm -hmm. um, to hear different opinions. I think the different things surprise different people. Uh, One of of the uh, speakers that probably Provoked people the most was Eleanor Swerry talking about the um, the soul machines and the what that looks like in terms of artificial intelligence, um, and I think that's quite confronting. Mm-hmm. But probably one of the areas that is on the steepest curve at the moment. Mm-hmm. So I think that um, that was something that we achieved that we had hoped mm-hmm. uh, we would. Um, yeah i think so so jason swanson was our visiting speaker and he he comes from knowledge works in the united states and i i think um it was it was good to bring in someone that had a different perspective to see what they also thought of the christchurch situation and get their mm-hmm. um their viewpoint yep and i think I know he thinks that there's such potential in Christchurch to to be amplifying the future of learning and growing that whole idea. And so that's really what we're taking forward into the next step.
0: Mm. So what does that mean, um, amplifying the future of learning? Like, what's the next steps, or what does it actually mean?
1: That's a good question, mm. because th- so there's a few things. One is that we are looking at creating... Uh, a city of learning, and it's not necessarily going to be called that because you can't carry on the conversation that we started without involving youth and without involving Itahu. And so uh, but we are having those conversations about you know, what how can we grow the idea of learning, uh, in a way that is more future-focused and takes advantage of the technologies and the technology centre mm. sector that we have in Christchurch, but also um, how do we start connecting uh, the parts of the Christchurch puzzle together? So there's a, there are some amazing things happening, but it's happening in pockets, and what, what we call pockets of promise. And if we want it to be learning to be available for all people – then that's one of the things about the future of learning that we're we're aiming to um, push forward. Uh,
0: so it, the ideal situation, like let's leave aside Christchurch as the mm-hmm. specific example, but just generally, because we've got lots of people listening from all over the world. You know, like what what would an, what would a city of the future <laughs> be doing differently around learning?
1: I think a city of the future um, around learning would have learning blurred across the city. Mm-hmm. So it wouldn't be happening in schools. It would be happening everywhere in multiple ways and it would be equitable. So that's one of the key drivers for any of the city of learning work that's happening globally mm-hmm. um, is the, the the how can we make um, learning meet the needs of the individual. So when I, I talked right at the beginning about uh, the my teacher m- making mm. learning authentic, that's part of the drive. So there's a whole the whole drive to make learning more authentic and to connect things and to have people given the opportunities to take part in micro credentials or different ways of learning that are quite different from the way we've we've learnt in the past. So that's the, that, that's incredible changes for some of our tertiary organizations, mm-hmm. our polytechnics, our universities, mm-hmm. um, the where we can learn and the how we can learn. Mm-hmm. Huge changes.
0: Mm. Yeah, it strikes me, you know, I'm a lawyer, so I studied for many years at Canterbury University. Um, I did a double degree, took five years. And, you know, at the end of my five years, I was given my degrees and then went and got a job. But what you're, you know, like micro credentials, for example, you know, that's really very different to the traditional way of learning, isn't it? It's it's saying actually, um, you're not going to go to this one place for five years and come out of it with a degree. You're actually going to build up little component pieces over a number of years. Is that that's that's the contrast, right?
1: That's the contrast, and they don't have to go together to be a formal degree so they they Mm -hmm. talk about a learning mosaic um, or creating your own learning playlist Mm -hmm. which might have some university component but it might have some uh, some YouTube watching or it may have some um, some work with a mentor it can be a whole lot of different things Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think um, the, the the conversation with people who are still fixated with the university pathway yeah. um, will find that in, in countries around the world, increasingly people don't need to have degrees. And in fact, if if uh, because of the pace of change, sometimes universities can't keep up with the change, especially in the technological areas. Mm. So, so if you're uh, studying artificial intelligence, for example, mm. you're unlikely to... Um, Go for a degree qualification. You're more likely to be uh, talking on in, in chat rooms, uh, to be watching videos, and to be connected with people who are the top of the top of that that um, area. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, the, the, those changes mean that uh, I can pivot with my learning any time I want and, and actually it's about my learning so it has to be personalised for me because that's a huge trend, the whole idea of personalisation um, uh, and if you think about the degree process it's not necessarily that all of that will be gone, some subjects may still need that uh, but when you think about it, how much a degree costs and there's no guarantee of a job at the end anyway, uh, it's, that's a really different place, why would yeah. I spend all that money uh, to get a qualification when um, I'm not sure of, of the cost benefit.
0: Mm. And you use the word mosaic there. I kind of like that. You know, like at the end of a degree, you have a degree, like it's one thing and mine is in this subject, you know. Whereas what, I think what you're saying is that you could actually have a multiple learnings across a wide variety of subjects and, you know, maybe bunch together quite good in this area here but also pretty good over here as well and then over time you know expanding out and the mosaic gets bigger.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's exactly right the the, the mosaic changes and so rather than thinking about a qualification and you have it and then, then you go into the workforce because of the changing pace of of work and the maybe the multiple jobs that you might have, uh, you'll need different things. And so there's a big focus on the lifelong learning. Mm. It's bandied around a lot as a you know as a a phrase, but um we're going to need to keep learning mm. on the job and um, some of those transferable skills, those competencies are going to be just as important as mm. the the content that we know because that that's cha- that shelf life is is rapidly um, increasing all the time.
0: Mm. And one of the things, I guess, is what subjects are that you study, because in the past, you know, you kind of, um, well, when I think about my degree, you know, was, there's was lots of memorization <laughs> and um, being able to explain things and, and write things down. But there was very little about the soft skills of um, connecting with people, relationships, teamwork and it feels to me i don't know what you think but that feels like that's becoming more important as we go forward into this future where we can turn to our phones and we can look up on google mm. a particular fact whereas the ability to build relationships is is a soft skill that isn't really even taught in our higher institutions in in a formal way i mean
1: yeah i, th- I think Absolutely agree with that. In my work, I talk about the importance of 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 being uniquely human because with okay. the increase in technology, if if I can look up on my phone for a, a lot of content and information, mm-hmm. um, I don't need to keep so much in my head. I don't need to regurgitate knowledge. I can find things quite quickly. Yeah. Um, but what technology can't do is the soft skills that you were talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that. That ability to work with others, the collaboration, the team, um, the teamwork, the persistence, um, the the being on time, all of those sorts of things um, will mean that even as a lawyer, you you know, you more likely have a job in the future because we know that uh, in in law, um, technology Mm. is replacing lawyers uh, as well as um, in in other um, areas that maybe were... Mm. um,
0: yeah, my hope is that they replace me, but that they do the boring bits that I don't enjoy anyway. Absolutely. <laughs> and that, that then frees me up to work. Because my favorite bit is if a client comes and says, I've got this really tricky situation and I want to do a, you know, I want to do a joint venture and I want to buy this company and I'm not sure what terms and conditions to put, you know, and, and then it's like, oh, well, let's work through it. Like, that's the that's the more interesting part, the, um, you know, the the adminy type of roles which i also have to do i don't really enjoy if somebody else can do it better than you know so it'll be bingo yeah that's
1: right so use technology to do the things that are more mundane that mm. you uh, that, that technology can do better mm-hmm. and leave you to do all of the magic with clients and uh because each client is unique mm-hmm. and you need to hear their story and look in their eyes and talk to them to be able to understand what their needs are. Yeah. And I think that's that's where we need to be um, doing more of our learning.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's that phrase adding value, isn't it? Yeah. Where can you add value to the, to the client or whatever? So obviously what we're talking about is quite different to the current status quo. You know, what is it that needs to change? Do you think universities themselves... Um, well, actually, at the conference, I think one some of them were talking about micro-credentials, weren't they? Like, is this something that universities are going to be able to embrace and we will continue to have them as institutions? Or are we talking about a paradigm shift, which moves us away from that form of um, that entity, I guess?
1: <laughs> I think there's going to be more uh, variation and more options for people to learn and so the, the universities themselves uh, a lot of them will survive and people will still think, think they're important because they've always thought they're important mm-hmm. uh, but because there are more choices universities are changing but they have such a monster of tradition mm. and, and some people that want to change and some people that want to keep doing uh, what they've always done and I just don't think that's an option anymore. Mm-hmm. So um, yes, uh, universities, uh, polytechnics are talking about micro-credentials. There's a whole lot of you know, New Zealand qualification authorities, same overseas. Um, that is um, increasingly Another option, so you know nano degrees that aren't out of uh, universities but are small mm. you know, smaller chunks um, mm. they will increasingly put pressure on universities and tertiary uh, organizations and schools because there'll be other ways I can learn and and I may choose to go to a school or a, a university, but I may, may choose some other options
0: mm-hmm yeah, it'll be fascinating to listen to this interview in 2038, right? <laughs> and just reflect back on what's... Let's meet, meet big in this room. Should we do that? In, yeah, okay, in so. 20 years, we'll yeah. see what's changed and, and what's what stayed the same. Because <laughs> yeah, it'll be a really fascinating thing. Um, are there other things that you're seeing, you know, you're, you're thinking a lot about the future. Are there other things or messages that you think the general population who aren't focused on it as much um, might be interested to... You know, understand, or um, it's a very wide question, so you can take it how you want.
1: (laughs) For me, the key is that it's everyone's job to scan the future and to keep their head up occasionally. So, in our organizations, we can't have one person that has the job of scanning and seeing what's out there and bringing it back. We all have to be aware um, because things are much more fluid, and we can't be in our silo anymore. So across the globe, um, there are more um, organisations that are are working beyond their silos, where collaboration is growing, uh, where there are co-working spaces. And I think that is a sign that our traditional models of learning in silos uh, has had its time, uh so that's right from the school through to the the universities mm-hmm. so you know that's you can't just learn one body of knowledge without understanding that it connects to everything else mm-hmm. and that's what what an ecosystems about that's what you know, the, the systems the networks and the 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 interconnections are, are critical
0: mm. yeah yeah i think you're right i i, I love it when i introduce people and they are completely unrelated fields, you know, like a climate change scientist and an accountant, or you know, like something very different. And then they tar- start talking, and they realize that that they're facing the same issues or the same problems, expressed very differently, you know. And, and but actually, underlying it, there's many similarities, and then they can actually learn from each other. It's uh, it's fascinating. This because uh, the podcast every week it's a different person. And some of the podcast people who I've interviewed have now gotten in touch with each other. And I've had some emails saying, oh, I met this other guy. And now we're doing a collaboration on this, this new project. So I agree with you. It's the, we need to do more of that getting out of our silos and um, being open to listen to other people and their perspectives.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think that's why I love um, co-working spaces and the opportunity to bump into other people Mm -hmm. and just find out things that I would never have been able to understand by myself.
0: Mm, Yeah. So are you going to hold another Future of Learning conference? Is that on the horizon or what's the plans?
1: Um, We're thinking about it. We're not sure what what it will look like Mm -hmm. and how it will connect to some of the other things that are happening in the city so maybe next year and maybe the following year Mm -hmm. uh, but there'll be some other events in between and they'll link to different things that are happening in the city so uh, it's important that we we're all working together Mm -hmm. Uh, so the our our piece of work at the moment is to carry on working with the the city of learning idea to just connect the dots Mm -hmm. so that uh Everyone has the opportunity to learn in the city and that it's equitable because that's equity is a, a key driver in the work that I do.
0: Mm. And does that come back to that original um, school that you were the principal at, um, you know, in your own childhood as well? You know, you talk about equity and access to education. Is there an echo there? Is that one of the reasons for it, do you think? Sure.
1: Absolutely. I think uh, there, there's a, a, a couple of things that have resonated me in the last few years one is that a at a, a conference I heard um, one of the the leaders from world vision talk about if you make a difference to a young woman uh, that amplifies ten times if you make a, a difference to a, a, a young man it amplifies four times so I have a particular passion for what we might do to educate and support young women mm-hmm. to develop their own businesses to uh, to um, be educated because that is the way out of poverty mm-hmm. uh, so that's a key a, a key driver equity and, I, and I, it's probably been reinforced for me in the last five years in my role as a board member at the new school in Christchurch that's um, that's opened mm-hmm. uh, Hayata community campus um, because of the needs and uh, the importance of the, of schools that are uh, of different socioeconomics in any any city mm. any place in the world working together for the the greater good mm. uh, rather than um, being competitive and protecting their own nest we're we're a small country mm. uh, we have to work together, we're a small city, and so uh, I just see the opportunities for. Us to come together, yeah, um, and that's that's a key driver.
0: That's great. And if people want to connect with you, um, what's the best way? Website,
1: probably through my website, which is just www.thinkbeyond.co.nz. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm easily found on Twitter and LinkedIn and most social social media sites. So um, mm. that's that's probably the best oh, that's way. That's great.
0: Well, people may or may not know this, but in the show notes for the Podcast episode. We'll put links to those Great. things, and then if you're listening, <laughs> you can just scroll down, and then they'll be able to find the websites and um, and you know connect. And yeah, it, it's been a fascinating conversation. I've loved mm-hmm. sort of tracing right back from your early childhood. You know, the fact that you loved reading and that studying was a part of who you were, and then to become a teacher, to be, become a principal. And now it feels like what you're doing really does reflect all of the experiences that you've had. And I love it when I'm talking with people, because I didn't know all your background, but um, I can definitely see that what has shaped you is now forming what you're doing now and now looking to the future, you know, what will learning look like in the future. So it just remains for me to say thank you for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate your time. It was great chatting with you.
1: Thanks so much for inviting me.
0: No problem. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that interview. I know for me, it was quite challenging thinking about the future, not just, you know, a year or two in advance, but thinking 10 years or 20 years or 40 years away. And I thought some of those insights about education were really challenging in terms of the old ways of doing things and what the future may hold. If you enjoyed this episode, then consider leaving a rating or review for the show and also hit subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes. And don't forget that this is one of dozens and dozens of interviews. So you might want to check out some of those earlier ones as well. Until next time.